One of the most perceptive journalists uh, I've come across in a long time, and certainly the most exhilarating style of writing, is Tom Wolfe. And at the moment, the subject is the candy-colored tangerine flake streamline baby and other articles published by Farrar, isn't it Farrar Strauss? Farrar Strauss and Giroux. And yes. Giroux. Yes. And Tom Wolfe, our guest this morning, uh, no doubt great many listeners have heard of Tom Wolfe. Uh, he's been made into a controversial figure, but what's missed in the pro-con comments concerning Tom Wolfe is that he's a marvelous journalist, I feel, with a style that's terribly exciting and incisive. And I thought perhaps before we talk about the book itself and some of the discoveries he's made about our society, uh, there's a young kid, his name is Chuck, he's 19, lives in Chicago, and uh, he's been on his own ever since he was about 14. He's looking for something. And Tom and I will sit here and listen to Chuck uh, answering a few questions. What do you do when you lose your time? What is your... Uh... <laughs> My motorcycle. Tell, tell me about the motorcycle. Uh, I don't know. I've had one ever since I was 17. And uh, it's been something I could constantly work on, that's all. When I lived on Wilson Avenue, I didn't want to get in trouble. So I felt I had to have something that could keep me out of trouble. So I got a motorcycle, completely wrecked, and I built it. And I had no knowledge of it, so it took me five times longer than it'd take anyone else. And this kept me out of trouble. And then after that, I enjoyed it. I fell in love with them, and then I... Ever since I've owned motorcycles, I've built them, I've raced them to a point, uh, and this summer I want to ride tracks. You want to do what? I want to uh, ride tournaments with my motorcycle. Oh, actually? And race for trophies. So this is the, so you built this motorcycle yourself, you taught yourself to build it? Yeah, the first one I built myself, with my boyfriend's help, Gary, the boy I was living with. Why? You just wanted to prove you could uh, do it on your yeah, own? Yeah, I wanted it, and I wanted it bad enough, and I had no money. So to get it, I had to buy something very cheap, and then I had to wait to build it. So while I was waiting, I learned about it. Then after that, I sold it, and I got a car, and from the car, I swapped for another more money, and I built up, and finally, I ended up with another motorcycle, and I built there. As Chuck and his interest in motorcycle, I suppose he interests you, doesn't he, Tom Wolf? Yeah, I see a, a really tremendous mushrooming interest in, in motorcycles, and among kids all over the country at all kinds of levels, social levels. And as you could tell from what he was saying, it's, it's something that's a real form of expression. And this is something we've overlooked in this country about the automobile and the motorcycle, especially the motorcycle, that these things are forms of expression. You know, we thought we were being very sophisticated a few years ago when we discovered that the automobile was a status symbol. That was about when the term status symbol really came into popular usage, and we thought that if you discovered that having a Cadillac in front of your door put you a few rungs ab above the guy next door who had a Rambler, that this was a great sophisticated discovery, and all the time we didn't realize what a form of expression uh, these things are. And I want to go to Columbus, Ohio, and perhaps down to Columbia, South Carolina, and a few places that I've heard of where high school kids are going in for motorcycles uh, as a, with a real cult dedication, a kind of dedication that the Hell's Angels have and that some of these other groups that we've been hearing about, mostly through riots and other things this summer, have. And we've reached the point where we can no longer just put these kids down for doing this or think of them as hooligans or wild men or as marginal because more and more they're not going to be marginal figures. This is going to uh, mushroom, it's really going to mushroom this kind of 
self-expression or self-indulgence, not meaning that in a bad way, because that's going to be the leitmotif of this country for a long time now. I think this is what makes uh, Tom Wolfe's writing exciting. He digs deep beyond the stereotype you were saying a moment ago that we immediately, I'm sure the first image in the minds of many of the listeners and most everybody is kid on a motorcycle or a kid in a certain kind of a stock car is, is wild hooligan. We think of Hell's Angels as the classic group. And yet what Tom Wolfe proved here in this marvelous piece, the title piece, the candy-colored tangerine flake streamlined baby, that it is a form of expression. Would you mind telling us about this, this article, how it came about? The candy-colored tangerine stream flake, uh, tangerine flake streamlined baby <laughs> I can't say it is not a girl. <laughs> we make that clear. This is a car. Right, yeah. This, this, the the candy-colored tangerine flake streamlined baby is a, an automobile created by a young kid from Lafayette, Indiana, who went out to Los Angeles. His name is Camp. That's His interesting. His name is uh, Ronnie Camp. That's interesting, yeah. the word camp here, too. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's in a way a pernicious yeah. word. But anyway, Ronnie Camp was a kid who, very much like your... The uh, Chuck. We were, to Chuck, we, we were just listening to, who was uh, sitting around Lafayette, Indiana, not greatly appreciated by anyone, uh, including his parents, I gather. And he had heard about these great custom car makers out in California, George Barris, Ed Roth, and some of those people. So he did what a lot of kids have done in the world of art. And, you know, in the world of art, traditionally, youngsters have gone to New York and lived in a garret and started painting and done anything to support their, uh, their art. Of course, today they just go there and make motion pictures. <laughs> they sort of given up the painting. Also, if they go into painting, they make a, a million dollars right away. But anyway, uh, Los Angeles today is really the New York of teenage. And these kids, like Ronnie Camp, will get in their car and travel all the way to Los Angeles with no money and get a job sweeping up in a filling station or something. And sort of parked themselves on the doorstep of a man like George Barris, who is now in his 30s, but is the, known as the king of the customizers. And they will get a, sometimes they will open a garage to fix and fix uh, wrecks, but just to get the money so they can create these very wild, baroque custom cars that they make out there. Pretty soon they can't stand to fix the wrecks anymore. It's too dull, it's, and it's the same thing happens in, in the world of art, of course. The, the artist who's doing a little commercial art on the side or who is working as an elevator operator or something, keeps saying that this is cutting into his creative uh, juices. And so pretty soon he's closing, he's locking up the garage uh, at 10 in the morning and just staying inside and turning out a, a car. Well, this car is in a very real sense an art form, and once they're created, they're treated like art forms. They're carried around the country, shown in exhibition halls. They have motors, they will run very fast, very, they're very powerful cars, but they are just really treated like sculpture. And this is something that developed out there and is the, the visible, sort of the visible symbol of a tremendous automobile cult in this country. It's interesting that Detroit, uh, the, the center, the, the you know, Detroit, the home of the commercial car, woos some of these guys. Well, oh, they keep a very close yeah. watch. Detroit has become very savvy now, realizing the influence of teenage tastes in the entire automobile market because... The Don't they seek Barris and Roth and other right. of these guys First as they their were, designers? Apparently they were just stealing Barris's designs. The, remember those things on the front of the Cadillac some years ago, the sort of bullet fender, bullet-shaped fenders? Um, this was something George Barris invented. They were the first to come up with tail fins, the first to come up with the exhaust pipe that comes out through the back fender, you know, it's not exposed. 
they were the f first to come up with these bubble tops. And, and in fact, it seems to me that most of the things that are preeminent in the styling of Detroit cars today, the customizers out in Los Angeles came up with first because, after all, they are the avant-garde uh, in that field. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that Detroit sees something here, that is, the big boys there do, whereas that what you call the ritual newspaper does not? And I think this is the key to, to Tom Wolfe's uh, journalism here, that he's going beneath the accepted stereotype. The kids who drive these cars are not to be taken seriously, certainly the, uh, the rock and roll kids are not. And you're saying they represent something new on the American scene, something very deep. Right. And here's, here's a, the, the funny factor in this. Remember Chuck was just saying how he finally got his big motorcycle and how he supported this um, form of expression of his, namely motorcycle riding. He he bought a motorcycle, and then he worked on it, then he sold it, and then he bought an automobile, and then with that automobile he traded up to a, an expensive motorcycle, and of course I haven't seen what he has now, but it's probably very elaborate. Most of them will get a, something like a Harley-Davidson. They really like those better than those little trim British models. They like the big hogback, as they're known. Big hogback motorcycle, and they'll cost $2,500, or maybe $3,000. Now this takes money, and 20, even if, no matter how you do it, if you end up with a $2,500 motorcycle and adding another four or $500 of what you're improving it with, somehow a lot of money's involved. And this is, the, to me, the revolutionary thing that's happened, or this is what touched off the revolution in taste and expression in this country, is that at every level of the population since the war, money has been pumped in at a fantastic rate. And people such as Chuck and the Chucks of this world are suddenly able to express themselves in a very in a highly visible and at times noisy way, such as through a motorcycle or through custom cars. A technological way, too. There's right. technological about it, a machine. Exactly. And this has led to um, really the preeminence of teenage styles in many areas in dress and dancing and so forth. They have, a, they have this vitality. They've always had it, but now they have a, the means to make it highly visible. And so people who are in the sort of the center of the social structure or the status structure uh, and who do not have very exciting styles, who have not had very exciting styles for about 30 years, um, when they look for styles, they look around them and suddenly they're finding their styles among teenagers or among um, bohemians or among the narcotics users. There's a lot of the current language that even creeps into everybody's conversation is from the world of narcotics users. Uh, the, all of these marginal, outcast, pariah styles are coming into the center in this country. Now, more and more, we're seeing things such as I happened to notice in Boston a few days ago. There was a four-day house party there among teenagers. Somebody's parents went away, and their son said, well, I'm going to have, they told, he told his parents before they left, I'm going to have a few friends over the Monday night after you all leave, just sort of a pajama party or something. And so I said, well, all right. So they came over, and pretty soon this little pajama party for five or six friends had grown into a, an ongoing binge for about 200 kids, and they were coming up in their motorcycles and their cars from all over, parking out in the streets. And this thing just went on and on, like that great scene at the end of Tortilla Flat, uh, the, the Steinbeck novel. 
And of course, at the end, somebody blew the whistle and the cops came and everyone was horrified and they're having a big self-examination out in Wayland, Massachusetts right now. Where have we gone wrong? What has happened? The thing is, nothing has gone wrong. This, first of all, this party couldn't have happened without money because cases after case of beer was coming in to this house and that's not inexpensive, especially for a, for a kid. Food was coming in, they were eating something. They hired a band uh, and bands, even teenage rock and roll bands, don't come cheap anymore. They came there in motorcycles, they came there in cars. They, could, they, they were in a position to keep a motorcycle or a car there for three or four days. This means there's a lot of money poured into this, and this is one of the reasons that nobody can stop it. And they can help, they can examine their souls in Wayland, Massachusetts from now till doomsday, and they can come up with a lot of complicated reasons for why this is happening. And I, it, I think that, you know, Tom, as you're talking, Tom, well, you are not making an editorial comment. You're really saying, what is? This right. Is, and I suppose the added phrase might be, that the dough can be there, but unless there's another purpose in life. You know, if, if this is it, if the thing is that important as against the man, this is inevitable. And you're saying all the soul searchers in the world will not solve it. Right, and this is going to, this is going to keep happening. Now, people will sometimes ask me, what do I think should be done? And I think the very question is becoming an anachronism because nothing is going to be done as long as people have the independence to act the way they want. And this, in this country today, this is possible to an extent that, uh, unparalleled in history. Uh, I, I couldn't help but be struck on the weekend that, that President Kennedy was assassinated by the hot rod and custom car show at the Coliseum in New York. Now, New York closed up tight that weekend, as I guess most of the country did, out of, out of shock as well as respect. I mean, people were in a state of shock, uh, most adults. Well, I had been planning to go see George Barris and Ed Roth. At the, the two custom two car, custom car uh, makers in California. Right, the, the, two, the two great figures in the field at the Coliseum at this hot rod and custom car show. So I went on over there on Saturday, and Kennedy was shot on Friday, right? Yeah. This place, the rest of New York, mind you, was closed up tight. Broadway was, it looked like a brownout from World War II or something. This Coliseum was jammed. These kids were, they were pouring over these automobiles. Uh, the thing didn't slow up for a minute. It was a tremendous crowd in there. Now, what did this mean? Some monumental, uh, did this mean some monumental disrespect, some tremendous apathy? No, it, it, it didn't, I don't think it meant that at all because it was just that these kids at, in, this, in this stage in history are completely removed, or a great many of them are completely removed from the, the way of thinking that I grew up with and that most people uh, my age, and I'm, you know, I, I'm a pretty old man now, I'm 34 years 34, old. 34, <laughs> well, you're a pretty young man in my book. <laughs> uh, they, there is a completely different frame of mind. It's no good to sit around and saying this is terrible because it's not going to change That's true. Thing, I'm, I'm not quite sure I agree with you as to the reason for it. I, I agree with you that there's, the fact is the fact, and the fact you describe so beautifully here is so, that there is this complete cutoff, unless we understand what they're seeking, where it'll be lost forever. I think one of the reasons, at least my feeling, one of the reasons, there's really no purpose that we have that the thing is very important, the thing, 
whether it be the Cadillac, or whether it be the home, or whether it be a certain kind of job, rather than the man. As long as we're going to have, as long as we accept that, this has to be. And all the soul-searching in the world won't, and all the editorials and sermons won't mean a damn thing. So well, I, I don't think we can give them a yeah. purpose. And I'm not sure yeah. that there's even any need yeah. to. Yeah. Because we've reached a situation yeah. where, in many respects, the old socialist ideal of the kind of choices that men should have has been achieved. And this is a scary thing. In other words, we have it at every level, and it's just incredible uh, that it is at every level. People with, with time and money with which to indulge their own egos. Now this is something that people have been shooting for, for for centuries, and now that we've got it, it's a little scary. Because if you have a... The we is not all-inclusive, though. Yeah. There, there, are, you know, there are tremendous pockets of, as, or as Harrington would say, Michael Harrington, you know, there are more than pockets of non-affluence, you know. Well, I don't think yeah. there are as many as he thinks there are. Or at least, where they exist, they are terribly real, and they are terribly depressing. Nonetheless, I didn't mean, I didn't mean yeah. to, to argue your point, but you yeah. what you say is true. You know, the tremendous you know, flow of dough where there had not been before in many quarters or so. And this is what you're... And I'm going to I'm going to borrow a term of of yours, the lump in middle class. Oh, <laughs> I think that's a a great concept, the lump in middle class. That is, as you ex were explaining it to me, people at a middle class income or better, people making ten to twenty, even twenty five thousand dollars, but at a, a job category that uh, we aren't used to associating with. What were some of those? Job well, the window washer, for example, window, makes yeah. his ten grand a year and has his home in a western suburb, mm -hmm. and has the various prejudices built up that he thinks a middle class man should have, and the certain material things. But he doesn't. He lacks the certain, uh, whether it be academic training or one other aspect we associate with middle class. You know, but the smugness of the middle class is with him. The complacency is with him, and it's a new phenomenon on the scene. But uh, this isn't to say, and this is not meant to be snobbishy, this isn't to say that someone who hasn't had uh, academic training isn't lumpen either in yeah. outlook, you yeah. see. But th I think there's this tremendous, uh, which is fertile territory, by the way, for Tom Wolfe. I think we should come back to his book. So The Candy-Colored uh, Tangerine Flake Streamlined Baby is, this is the most celebrated piece. We know this because this was based, mm -hmm. would you mind recounting the story? It was an article for Esquire, you were supposed to Oh, you mean to how I happened to, yeah. the writing process? Yes. You know, that was a great thing in my life. I didn't know it at the time. It was it was mortifying at, at the time. Uh, I had suggested this story idea to Esquire to go out and look at these custom car makers because I'd done a story for the Herald Tribune, a daily assignment, and I realized when I did it that I was doing a very conventional newspaper job and hadn't done this thing justice because I had run into a couple of custom car makers out there who had been living their lives like artists. And this was exactly what I w didn't expect to find at this thing. I expected to find what every newspaper expects to find at this kind of thing, a hot rod show. They expect to find some sort of kooks. And the purpose of the story usually is to make fun of them. So I came back and I made fun of them because I couldn't think of anything else to do at the time. But then I knew there was something more to it, though. So I went out to uh, Los Angeles for Esquire. And suddenly I found myself in this incredible world of automobile expression that I didn't know existed and I didn't really didn't feel capable to deal with. I, I couldn't get the concepts straight that I could use for it. It was just something completely new, completely 
uh, American. Sometimes I think California is the only American state in the country. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, I came back and I was going to write this thing, and Esquire had these this big double page of color photography locked into the presses by this time, and I simply couldn't write it. And they said, "Well, it cost us five or ten thousand dollars to pull this thing off the presses. We've got to have a story, and if you can't write it, you give us your notes." and we'll give it to a writer and he'll make something out of it. So I sat down and I tried once again to write and I just couldn't write it. So I called up the editor, Byron Dobell, and I said, Byron, sorry, I can't write it. And he said, all right, I haven't got time to, I can't, I can't coax you along anymore. Just sit down and, and write down your notes and we'll get somebody to write the story. So I sat down one night about eight o'clock and I started typing out my notes in the form of a memorandum that began, Dear Byron, uh, the first thing I saw and first custom cars I saw in California were you know, very flat, straight out, uh, presentation of what I had seen. And the first thing I knew, as I started just recounting in sequence, the thing began taking on a pattern in my mind. It began falling into place and I began to see exactly what I had been studying out there. So I started writing and I wrote all night and by 6.30 in the morning I had 49, a 49-page memorandum and I was about dead by that time, but I, I just picked it all up and went walking over to the Esquire offices. And you have a chapter, the opening chapter after introduction, and you suddenly realize it's a sad, there's a sadness about this place that's really an old people's home. Yeah. Well, Las Vegas, <laughs> Las Vegas is a, a real old people's uh, resort, because that's the old last thing. resort, the, I mean. That's the last thing in the world that, that they would ever want it to be uh, labeled as, because it it works hard at presenting a, an image of really young, vital gaiety, but I think what, what has happened out there is that there are an awful lot of people who have grown up living the, the straight life and urging their children to, but their children didn't do it. Their children just went out and raised hell, and they said, well, you'll come to ruin. Well, the kids didn't come to ruin. <laughs> They're out making a lot of money <laughs> and having a good time. So finally, I think a lot of these people said, well, we've denied ourselves this all our lives, and it doesn't seem to make any difference anymore. So they go out, they go tooling out to Las Vegas, they put on their Capri pants, and... So the little lady from Columbus, or the retired little uh, uh, grocery store owner from uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, yeah. comes out there, yeah. and that's, there goes the Puritan ethic, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> and the, the, funny, the funny thing is that many of the shows out there have the performers that a person from say 50 to 65 years old would remember from his 20s and 30s people like Harry James or Ben Blue I don't know if anybody remembers Ben Blue Ben Blue surely a bald headed comic Ben Blue the sad face comic or the group that I can't remember their names now the, the probably Harry Richmond too possibly oh, well that certainly that, yeah, that group that uh, yeah. kind of performer and it's because there is this old crowd there in other words they don't have they have very few rock and roll acts out there, very few, even though that's what's carrying the whole music business right now. They have, they have someone like Eddie Fisher, who is really a throwback to the ballad era of the 30s and 40s. And I think one of the most vivid images you have are the old baby. You, you describe a scene at the dice table and the caller, and uh, the description of the, of the uh, employees is marvelous. They got that certain kind of look, don't they? How do you describe the kind of look that when someone who's a square, someone comes in, challenges them, they just know he's taken care of, and casually. Yeah, but then you got the old babes, 
You see, the sound of the crap stealers will be in, let's, let's say, in, in the middle register. In the lower register will be the sound of the old babes at the slap machines. You should read this. Why don't you read this? Okay. Yeah. Although, you know, I've, I've listened to about 15 records of poets reading their own work, and uh, I've gone to sleep about seven well, out of 15. <laughs> All right, in the lower register will be the sound of the old babes at the slot machines. Men play the slots too, of course, but one of the indelible images of Las Vegas is that of the old babes at the row upon row of slot machines. There they are at six o'clock Sunday morning, no less than at three o'clock Tuesday afternoon. Some of them pack their old hummocky shanks into capri pants, but many of them just put on the old print dress, the same one day after day, and the old hob shoes, looking like they might be going out to buy eggs in Tupelo, Mississippi, which was uh, Elvis Presley's hometown, by the way. They have a Dixie cup full of nickels or dimes in the left hand and an iron boy work glove on the right hand to keep the calluses from getting sore. Every time they pull the handle, the machine makes a sound much like the sound a cash register make before the bell rings. Then the slot pictures start clattering up from left to right, the oranges, lemons, plums, cherries, bells, bars, buckaroos, the figures of a cowboy riding a bucking bronco. Then the picture of this, here she is, maybe a library, you may have been a librarian, a Dixie mm -hmm. cup full of nickels and dimes and an iron boy work glove to keep her hand getting calluses and pulling the, so it's a continuous, this goes on, of course, yeah. all hours, day yeah. and night. Well, you know, I, I do find images like that really important and I, I do try hard for specifics like the iron boy work gloves and that kind of thing because I've I found I think a lot of people have found that the language the way it's been used especially in this era of understatement we've been in for about 30 years just doesn't get the job done it doesn't attract attention anymore and it cannot it literally cannot compete with the uh, electronic means of communication people will get too bored. And I think much of the writing that we are used to thinking of as great stuff from the 40s is already as dated to most people in this country as Macaulay or Cardinal Newman or Hazlitt would, would be to, to anyone, and they're writers from the early 19th century. This is an interesting point you're making here. The, the, I hate to bring up this phrase, the New Yorker style of writing. Yeah. Uh, audience probably knows that uh, devastating profile, prof series of profiles on, it. on the New Yorker was done by Tom Wolfe has caused quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of furor in New York. And, but uh, that style, let's say, that understated style as against what might be described, that might be described, you don't mind this, the Thomas Wolfe style, wholly different, but the fact that your namesake was not afraid either. He wasn't, I mean, his way of writing is different from yours, but nonetheless, he was not afraid either of uh, say overusing, just to, yeah. to paint pictures that are vivid and alive, I personally lean to and enjoy very much. Well, well I figure if you're a writer and you can't cut loose in your writing, well, then you'd better quit. You'd better do something but else. But this later. point you made is interesting, that today in this, so much is happening in our world that the word, the word itself as we knew it in the past is inadequate. Well, I, I'll uh, often use, try to use a word without a literal meaning, such as in the beginning of the one story about Las Vegas, the word hernia, to uh, indicate a sound, and repeating the word hernia over and over again. This is the um, dealer, this is the craps dealer in the slide. The very opening of, this, of the sequence, you have the word hernia about 50 times, it seems. Right. Just, and yet we get in reading at the sound of this guy's nasal voice going through doing it. Right, and also I think I, I try to strike in that use of that word a, a balance between the sound, which it was conveying, it was conveying the sounds of the stick men at the craps tables, and something of the literal meaning of hernia, the uh, the 
I don't know, it's a, it's a sound of, it's a weary, repetitive sound, but I don't think any sheer de, uh, literal description of it would ever get it across the way using the word somewhat obliquely uh, in a... Yes. Uh, it's, a, do it. it's, I think we it's a marvelous uh, thought, the fact that not only is it this man using this phrase, the sound you hear, but as you say, the word hernia in it, the way you do it, hernia, the, the, the impact of the word hernia on us is, you say, someone who's weary and tired, worn, so there's an emotional overtone to it, to the physical. Yeah, and I, I think words have got to be, they've got to be hyped up today they really do they're not going to they're not going to be heard they're not going to be read you know, as you describe las vegas it, it's uh, it's surreal they also have the the uh, the uh, homes institutions for the people who flip yeah here yeah. that it's part of the scene everything is done cool isn't everything is sort of done and of course the signs the signs are the key right. i think that it's very important to understand las vegas if we're going to understand what's going to happen to all of us even in New York or Chicago or Boston or anywhere in the next 20 years. We're, we're the styles and the tastes and a lot of the energy is going to move from the West. That's already happening. Now, you have two kinds of assaults on the senses, as I call them in Las Vegas, that are very unusual in this country. One is the constant bombardment of sound. You're always sort of encased in sound. You're in the casinos, there's always Muzak, plus the sound of the wheels, plus the sound of the stickmen, plus the sound of people chan uh, chanting, the sound of the silver dollars clattering everywhere. You can literally hear them. And there's also this in incredible landscape in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is in the middle of the desert, and it's the only town at this point, really, except for crossroads here and there, where the landscape is, landscape is not made up of trees and it's not made up of buildings it's made up of electric signs and these are incredible electric signs there for a two-story building you'll have a 10 15 story sign and they really had to rebuild buildings out there to put these signs on them because if they just put the 15 story sign on some of them it would have just tear the front off well this has an effect on you because the signs are very colorful. They spiral, they rocket, they turn, they gyrate, they do everything but do flip-flops. And when you fly in there at night, as a matter of fact, it looks like the whole town is crawling across the desert because there's so many signs lurching. The, the <laughs> colors are lurching this way and they're lurching that way. Well, this, I'm sure, has an effect on people, and no one knows what it is. I'm sure it does something in your life. Maybe good, maybe bad, I don't know. Um, it's the same thing. The reason I think uh, the reason I think this this whole town is important is that we're already seeing a few signs of the Las Vegas technique coming other places. The discotheque is one of them. Now, the, does Chicago have a lot of discotheques? Oh, now? sure, they're growing in number. They're well, I, I mean, I've read in Variety yeah. that's just everywhere now. Yeah, of course. And uh, they were in Boston when I was the there. The Cafe Gogos, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. sure. And I know they're in on the West Coast, and I think it's the prevailing pattern of nightlife everywhere. Now, this is not merely a new fad. This is a revolutionary form because of the use of sound. These places, the technique is to put amplifiers on the ceiling right above the dance floor or in the corners of the room so that you are not listening to music coming as though it were coming from a stage. It's coming down on top of you. It's hitting you from the sides. You're completely enclosed in it. It's like getting inside the jukebox instead of sitting off and listening to it. You're getting inside of a jukebox and it doesn't matter, e even if they have a, 
a live band, as many of them do, they're still using this amplifying system, and the sound is at a pitch that we've never gone through before. Now, this has a stimulation on people. It has a physical stimulation. It also numbs, too. It does and both. it's tiring. Uh, it, it, I think it stimulates you at first, and then it gradually wires out, uh, wears out the uh, nervous system, I, uh, I imagine. But the, the interesting thing is that nobody really knows what it does. And right now it's just discotheques, but pretty soon we're going to have the same kind of Muzak and noise universe that Las Vegas has, and we don't know anything about well, it. Well, it's happening now in elevators, going to see your dentist. There. Yeah. There's the sexless string Muzak coming through, and also on moving vehicles now, and, me, and right. the, uh, buses are having them. But isn't this, but along with that that's happening, there's the hatch. The hatches are set up at the end. I mean, the, the institutions for people who flip. Right. They're there. So it's, it's almost that's accepted as part of the inevitable aspect. A great many. But it's done rather coolly. It's done. Uh, I, I had a. I sort of was very fortunate at the end of that trip to stumble upon this psychiatric clinic, a county psychiatric clinic there. I was going by to see a Las Vegas psychiatrist to get a few comments on just sort of what he thought the town meant. It's just some sort of general thing. Well, he was very likable sort. He said, I, I'll tell you, all, tell you what I think about everything, but first I said, I've got to run over to the clinic. I have to see a few patients. Uh, do you mind uh, just tagging along with me and then I'll, we can spend a little time together? So I said, okay, and I went over there and suddenly I found myself in the middle of Las Vegas' snake pit. Well, that isn't fair because it's a, it's a well-run place. It's not really a snake pit, but anyway, that's, it is the pit where these, the casualties of the place uh, have to be dumped, and of course it's undermanned and understaffed. And here are, are the the people who haven't survived. The, the there's the old babe in a rocker without the iron boy glove. She's pulling her hand back this and forth was, as though in the motion of a. This was machine. a woman out in the courtyard, in sort of a sandy yeah. courtyard they had there. Yeah. Was rocking back and forth, in out in the middle underneath a sort of weak light about 7 p.m. and reaching out with her hand as though she were pulling the slot machine. Well, I asked some of the attendants if that's exactly what she was doing. I said, well, we don't, we don't there's know. There's no need for Tom Wolfe to say there's a parable here. It is. <laughs> it is. It's there. Because it's funny, if we may shift from a you know, different sequence of your book, yeah. the first uh, sequence is called The New Culture Makers, and these, this is Las Vegas and, and um, the custom car makers of California, and uh, uh, the fifth beetle, that's Murray the K, but clean, clean fun at Riverhead, to me, was a very significant chapter, too. This is about this kid, Leonard Mendelssohn, Right, the, the demolition derbies. The demolition derby. Yeah, and perhaps these, just these, this one comment by this young writer, and then I'll ask your whole view of this and how it came to be. This kid's driving a car, a stock car driver, and he loses control of the car, Leonard Mendelssohn, and he loses control of the car, and he he he's twelve rows up in the grandstand, and he says, "That's what got me." He's and he didn't he didn't hit one spectator. He says, "That's what got me." I remember I was hanging upside down from my seatbelt like a side of Jersey bacon, and wondering why no one was sitting where I, I hit. Lousy promotion, I said to myself. <laughs> Not only that, but everybody who was in the stands forgot about the race and came running over to look at me gift-wrapped upside down in a fresh pile of junk. And thus we have something I'm sure that will terrify a great many people, the fact that it's the crash, that people come to see the crash rather than the race. Oh, these, these demolition derbies are, are something. I don't know if they if, if they had them around here. Uh, he he is this man Mendelssohn has set them up all over the country and has a nationals in uh, 
in Pennsylvania. Suppose now. you describe the demolition and then perhaps we can talk a little about right. why this is so popular. Well, the Demolition Derby is a contest in which uh, 25 cars at a time go into uh, go onto a track with the idea, instead of outrunning one another, of demolishing one another. In other words, they will crash into each other until there's just one car left moving, and he's the winner. And they have four heats, 25 at a time. So you get 100 cars. Finally, in the end, you have you have eight cars left. You have the winner of each heat, and then you have somebody is sort of the best in show, the crowd pleaser, the best crowd pleaser, and this is determined by applause. He's usually the wildest of the drivers in there, the most devil-may-care. Uh, 